0: So Father, thank you for the gift of grace that you give us every day, Um, just life in you. We live and move and have our being. And thank you, Lord, for the perfection of your word. Lord, we could spend a a hundred, even a thousand lifetimes and we'd never exhaust all of its truths and comprehend everything in it. And I pray that tonight in particular, that you'd be with us as we walk through these verses, help us to understand uh, their truth, understand uh, what you would have us to learn and let it have the effect on us that you want it to have. Um, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I gave you the handout tonight is a section of a sermon that I preached on Romans 9, 14 through 18. I preached three sermons on that passage, but the first one gave a kind of a quick overview of some themes, which we walked through last time and we're gonna go a little more slowly and go through tonight. We're in Romans chapter nine. And uh, again, always it's helpful to get a sense of context. Um, so the text that we're going to walk through tonight is uh, verses 14 through 18. I don't know how far we'll get in it, but Romans 9, uh, 6 through 18, the, um, the scripture is listed there. So if somebody be willing to read uh, the verses that, uh, that are printed on the handout, or you can read them from your copy of the scripture, and it'll be kind of fun to hear somebody else's translation while you look at the one that's printed on the page. That's always fun. It's like stereo hearing or something like that. But um, anyway, who would like to read uh, Romans 9, 6 through 18? Just go ahead and read, if you would.
1: It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise, who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, but Yet, therefore, excuse me, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden.
0: All right, thank you. So uh, what we're looking at here as we continue in our study in Romans, we're looking at a really powerful section of Scripture, three chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, which Paul does uh, very thorough work on the question, simply put, what about the Jews? Or a little bit larger, why is it the overwhelming majority of, of the Jews are rejecting Christ as their Messiah? And then subsidiary questions. What does that say about God? What does it say about God's word, God's promises, Uh, all of that, that's wrapped up in it. Uh, Paul was the ideal um, spokesman, the representative. He's going to say at the beginning of chapter 11, God has not rejected his people. I am an Israelite myself. I am a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, This is a man that was trained thoroughly at the foot of Gamaliel and uh, was deeply steeped in uh, Jewish traditions. He was a, um, a Hebrew of Hebrews, um, he was pursuing uh, the law, uh, all of these things immersed in Jewish heritage and culture. And uh, he begins this section with a tremendous amount of emotion, uh, tremendous amount of passion, uh, sorrow, he says, great sorrow and unceasing anguish, he said in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, he calls them, uh, people of Israel, uh, fellow, my fe- fellow Israelites, um, he walks through their advantages, their 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 benefits. And uh, he's he's going to go through this question for three chapters. Now, this is a, a normal pattern for Paul on weighty topics. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he devotes three chapters to the problem of meat sacrifice to idols. There's three full chapters on that. Uh, and then he turns from that to give three full chapters on spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is all on gifts. The love chapters in the middle, it's still couched in, in the context of spiritual gifts. Um, and so he'll do this. He's very thorough uh, on the question of the resurrection. He gives a, a chapter, one chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, but it's 58 verses long. He's very thorough and careful. And so here he's got three uh, three chapters on on this incredible theme. And it's a dominant and important theme in the Bible. I mean, God's dealing with the Jews dominates the Old Testament. Of course it does. You know, from Genesis 12 on, from the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees on to the end of the Old Covenant, the Old, Old Testament, uh, it's God's dealings with Israel. And it's an agonizing and torturous journey. Uh, if, you, if you read the prophets, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you read all of that, you see the kind of anguish that the Jews put God through uh, and the pain that their sin and their idolatry put him through. Um, and uh, the image we get in chapter eleven of Romans is of a cultivated olive tree with a developed root system that goes deep, and branches having been stripped off and other wild branches grafted in. The sense is the tree's still there. There's still this unfolding story, and it's not complete yet. And so uh, it's it's a very important theme now for us as most of us Gentiles might wonder, um, you know, why why so much time on this, but. You take step step back and look at the whole big picture. It really does make sense. Jesus himself said salvation is from the Jews. He said that to the Samaritan woman at the well, and so um, God's dealing with the Jews is is a dominant theme. It's been going on for four thousand years, you know, um, approximately. Uh, Abraham, we estimate, was called out of Ur of the Chaldees around 2000 BC, and here we are, you know, and and you know beyond the year 2000, and the story is still in, unfolding. And uh, we believe when Paul says, behold, I tell you a uh, mystery, Uh, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Um, That's a mystery, he calls it a mystery. And he uses that word in a very technical sense, something that you wouldn't know any other way, but that uh, it seems like the story is gonna end in success uh, in a radical turning of the Jews to Christ in the end. But we've got a long journey to go through, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, all of that walking through. And we're right in the middle of it right now uh, with the question, why is it that the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Christ as their Messiah? Now it begins as we've seen in verse six with taking something off the table, something that, that we know is not the reason why. And what is that? He, he, we've said it every week that we've studied Romans nine so far, what is not the reason why the Jews are rejecting Christ as their Messiah? Jesus.
1: God did anything wrong. He did not
0: fail. God's word has not failed. It's not like God said, let there be light and there was no light. Would that be a problem if God's word had failed concerning the Jews? Would that be a problem for us as non-Jews? Well, why is that? Why would that be a problem for us? What could we trust? Yeah, if you can't trust God's word, what are we gonna... This whole thing, the Bible, it's nothing but God's word. We're gonna see in chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the word. It's everything comes from the word. It all comes down to the word of God. And if God's word can fail, then we have no hope. Now, as we walk through these clearly controversial doctrines, we understand that there's a lot of disagreement over it. Uh, People go back and forth. They've been debating on this for centuries long before us. Um, We should not imagine God's word is poorly written either. All right. Some could make a charge. You know, if there's this much wrangling, the thing should have been kicked back to the editor some time ago and gotten this whole thing worked out. Right. So why would we say, well, all right, we're not going to say God's word is failed, but it could be better written. Uh, Why? First of all, why would someone say that? They might say, you know, this whole thing could have been better written.
1: It's arrogant.
0: That's arrogant. But why would they say it at all? Right, but it's because of the wrangling, right? It's because of the dispute. You got good, solid Christians that disagree. People that love Jesus and don't agree on this. So that's why there might be some indication or some sense, gee, maybe something is wrong with the scripture. All right, but let's go back to what Jesus said to the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. Fundamental statement. I think we need to keep it in mind. It's humbling. We need to all, any humbling statement in the scripture ever, you should be humbled by it in some sense. I, I think it's just safe. So what did Jesus say to the Sadducees concerning their views on the resurrection, which they denied the resurrection and say doesn't exist? What did he say to them? Do you remember? You are in error. We'll start there. All right, you're wrong. All right, let's keep it simple. You're wrong. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So I think that's a good place for all of us to start. If I have a problem, if I'm off doctrinally, it's because I haven't understood the scripture properly. It's not because it could be written better. How arrogant would that be? But it's because I haven't understood and I haven't understood the po- power of God. That's what Jesus would say. So I, I know that that's taken a little bit out of context, but I think that's, that's true here. All right, so it's not as though God's word had failed. Now, God has given this controversial doctrine to us. Some, some people say, minimize it, minimize it. Don't make this thing front and center. Frankly, it's best not to even talk about it. Very good example of that was Philip Melanchthon. That was the advice he gave to Calvin, John Calvin, and uh, somewhat to Luther. Let's stay away from it. Let's not talk about it. What do you think about that strategy? In which case, we're pretty much done for the night. I don't have anything else. So you guys can just go home or wait for your kids. Um, but why would you say that, that might that's not the approach is just avoid the topic, let's not talk about it at all?
1: God wrote it for a purpose,
0: okay. and
1: we, we have to we have to study it. We have to
0: see what that purpose is. We're under a certain obligation because it's in the Bible. Do you see that? It you know, if God has given it to us, He wants us to read it and take it to heart. Similar to the statement about Revelation, blessed are those who read the words of these prophecy, this prophecy, and take to heart everything that's written in it. I would say that's even more true of Romans than it is of the book of Revelation. However great Revelation is, Romans plays a unique role in the canon. Uh, it is the clearest articulation of the gospel you'll find in the entire Bible. So while I don't want to say one scripture is more important than another, I just think it, it is. I just think it is. I just think Romans is more important than Philemon. I think Romans is more important than Obadiah. Star differs from star and splendor. Not all stars shine equally brightly. They all give light, but some give more light than others. And so because it's Romans, we need to walk through it. We need to understand it. Paul thought it was important. God thought it was important. We need to do it. Now I've said before, there are two particular um, states of soul, let's say, uh, mental states that God is going after in his people. He wants us to have these two things. Do you remember what I said? There are two good reasons for studying predestination, election, Uh, These topics, do you remember what they were? What are the two things that these doctrines deliver to us? Very well. Humility. Humility is one of them, absolutely. And then the other one, at the end of Romans eight, all right, nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. What's that all about? What is that designed to do for you, to deliver to you? Assurance, assurance. So these two great soul states, mental states, heart states, these doctrines deliver them powerfully to us. They humble us and they give us security. Humility and security come from these. And you can see both of these in Romans 3, Romans 4. And in Romans 3, there's a statement, where then is boasting, it is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. So salvation, by grace, through faith, excludes boasting. All right? What does that mean that boasting is excluded? Boasting is out. What does that mean to you? What's the significance of? Where is boasting? It's out. We
1: have nothing to boast about. We did nothing.
0: In the- Might we have a tendency to boast? Have any of you ever boasted? <laughs> Thank God I'm delivered from boasting. I'm not a boastful person. I don't actually have any problems with pride. I've heard that other people have problems with pride, but I personally don't have any problems with that at all. Um, I think it's pretty easy to prove it's maybe the core problem we humans have. And one could argue if you read Ezekiel a certain way and the possible origins of evil in the universe, that it started with satanic pride in his own beauty and capabilities. Possibly, the king of Tyre, he was in Eden. He was a guardian cherub, adorned with all kinds of radiant, fiery jewels. And he basically said in the vernacular, ain't I something? And that's where it seems to all have started, all right? He believed in his own wisdom and in his own power and his own beauty, and so fell. Uh, He compared himself to God, forgot, as Paul would say later, What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not, All right? So the fundamental thing is humility. God will spend eternity with humble people. I will say with humbled people, All right? What's the difference between being a humble person and being a humbled person? Yeah, well, it's gonna be the hard way. None of us is humble but we will all be humbled. And having been humbled, we will be humble, all right? So we have a process to go through. Do you have a sense that salvation is that process? Is not justification humbling? Is not sanctification humbling? Is not glorification humbling? Aren't they all humbling and is not election, unconditional election, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Is that not humbling? To Jacob, before you did anything at all, I chose you. It is, it's very humbling. So this, is, this has the power to humble us. And we're gonna need it because we're gonna be radiantly glorious in heaven. We're gonna be stunningly beautiful. We're gonna be conformed to Christ in his resurrection glory. We're gonna have minds and hearts perfectly conformed to Christ, we will not be Christ, we will not be God, but we will be conformed to him. And we'd have the greatest reason for boasting at that point. But at that exact point, when we have the greatest reason for boasting that we've ever had in our existence, we'll be the most humble. So God intends to humble us and these doctrines have the power to humble us, but he also wants to give us security. How does this doctrine give us security? Well, our salvation is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God and his choice. So um, yeah, we can't really mess that up. Right. So I quoted uh, where then is boasting it is excluded. That's um, Romans three twenty-eight, I think. And then uh, therefore the uh, promise comes by faith. So it may be by grace and may be guaranteed all Abraham's offspring. The guarantee, God wants a guarantee. He wants us to know John 6, Jesus said, I will raise them up on the last day. You're gonna get raised up. You're gonna be in your tomb and Jesus is gonna call you out and you're gonna come out to to live. And and he wants you to know that. He wants you to be secure about that. These doctrines have the power to do that. Now, Romans 6 through 13, Romans 9, 6 through 13 begins the discussion. First of all, it takes off the table. It's not as though God's word had failed. Nothing's wrong with God's word. And why? Because there is an Israel within the larger Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There is a remnant, he's gonna call it in chapter 11. There is an elect group of Jews within the larger group of uh, Jews. And so that's where he begins. His answer for why it is that the overwhelming majority of Jews are not believing in Jesus as their Messiah is election, choice. That's where he starts, okay? Not all, who are descended from Israel are Israel. There's a group within the group. There's an Israel within the Israel. So he uses the word Israel differently, even in the one verse. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. All right. Nor because they are his descendants are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac the offspring will be reckoned. In other words, verse eight. It is not the natural children who are God's children, but is the children of the promise, or children of God, or children born by the power of God, etc. There's a direct action of God, an activity of God on the heart of the elect bringing them to the knowledge of the truth, which apart from that, it never happens. So that's the Ezekiel statement. I'll take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's the very same thing that Paul says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly nor a circumcision merely out and physical, but a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. By the way, Ezekiel talks about a circumcised heart as well. So it's not a new concept with Paul. Um, So the circumcision of the heart is an inner work in which the wickedness, the evil, the corruption, the rebellion is cut out in a mysterious way by the spirit. And uh, there's this inner working done. So those are the children of the promise that are called the children of God. Just because you're biologically born, uh, a descendant of Abraham doesn't make uh, you a child of God. And then he gives the two examples First is the miracle baby, Isaac, who was born to a barren couple, an old couple beyond the years of childbearing, a barren wife, an old husband, and Isaac a miracle baby. And so in Galatians 4, it's plain, uh, Isaac was born uh, by the power of God. So I, that's why I call him a miracle baby. And he is a paradigm of all children of God. As John 1 says, children who are born not of the, by natural processes, but by born by God. And so that's the idea. It's the children who are born by the power of God who are considered Abraham's children and God's children. By the way, do you see that It's parallel? See that in verse eight? In other words, it's not the natural children who are what? God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's children. So to be it in this sense, a child of Abraham is to be a child of God. They're the same. Does that make sense? So that's what he's talking about. And so not, not just biology, it's not biology. That's not what does it, it's not biology, especially now that the gospels come to the Gentiles. It is supernatural power of God, all right? And again, the promise, uh, You know, we've got Sarah and the birth of the miracle baby, Isaac. And then secondly, we've got the case of the twins, Jacob and Esau, who are conceived at the same time by the same set of parents, uh, whereas Ishmael and Isaac uh, had different mothers, same father, but different mothers. And in the next case, Isaac and Rebekah, there's the same moment of uh, marital unity that produced twins. Um, and before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve, serve the younger. Uh, just as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So that's unconditional election. So the key on the sequence, as I mentioned with the circumcision argument earlier, is this happened before that, so this is not a causal factor. So was Abraham's righteousness caused by his circumcision? No, he wasn't even circumcised at the time. That came later. The declaration that Abraham was righteous came before he was circumcised. It was while he was an uncircumcised man. Later it came along as a sign of the righteousness that he already had. That's, you see the sequential argument, before, after, therefore not a causal factor. You have the same logic here before the twins were born or had done anything, their works are not causal factors. That's the logic here. It's not could God have foreseen their works. The problem with that approach is it's missing the way that Paul's arguing here. You see, you understand it's, it's missing the point of before they were born. So therefore the works are not a causal factor. It is not because of your works foreseen or otherwise that God chose. That's what he's saying before they are done, why? in order that God's purpose and election might stand. What is God's purpose? His ultimate purpose is his glory and our humbling. Does that make sense? Our salvation will be done by God for his glory in such a way that we're humbled and we're not boasting over our works. Does that make sense? And and that link between works and boasting is openly made in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works. Why? so that no one can boast. You see what I'm saying? There's that direct linking between works and boasting. If it's salvation by works, there's a tendency to boast. And we've noted before, all other religions in the world are effectively salvation by works. And therefore they're open to the charge of being uh, grounds for boasting. Does that make sense? So this is all by way of review. Um, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. Now let's talk about uh, 14 through 18, which we began last time. What shall we say then? What is your response? Now, Paul does this a lot in Romans. It's like, I'd like to elicit your response. What are you thinking so far? You know, Is that what he's doing? Not really. What he's doing is he's uh, saying effectively, one of you will say to me, or I can see what you're arguing. I, I can see how you would be arguing against this. Now, if you think about Paul's career as a Christian evangelist and how he approached his ministry, How did he generally do it when he would go to a community? What was his usual approach in the book of Acts? The synagogue. He would go to the synagogue. And what would he do, Tom, in the synagogue?
1: He'd blow in, blow up, and they'd blow him out. Okay, (laughs)
0: that's a quick summary, yes. But he would reason with them from the scripture. Any chance he would reason like this from the scripture? Yes. So where do you think he got his idea? One of you will say to me, dot, dot, dot. Where do you think that might've come from? Somebody, yeah, in the synagogue said those things to him. So you're going to accuse me of saying, let us do evil that good may result. I've heard that one before. All right, that's back in chapter three. He does this a lot. He brings up arguments against his doctrine and then seeks to refute it. Now, I've noted before the arguments that he seeks to address give us a clue to the doctrine itself that Paul's doctrine of salvation must be in such a way that you're going to think God is unjust. He's not, but it's going to come up. The idea of God being unjust should pop in your mind when you begin to understand this doctrine. Does that make sense? A, a doctrine in which the works are laid out, you do them or you don't, and what doesn't generally tend toward an accusation of injustice, right? It's a fair system. Here's what you need to do. Do it and you'll live. Don't do it and you die. No one would accuse God of injustice in that sense. So the doctrine has to tend toward, I would say at least an initial puzzling, right? An initial like, I don't get it. I, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And that's exactly what is happening here. The, the t- Before the twins were born, it had done anything good or bad. Jacob, I loved, he saw, I hated. Seems like that's unjust. So he's, he's dealing with the issue of injustice. So he brings up this question of, of the seeming injustice on unconditional election, it seems to be unjust. A uh, more uh, common language would be unfair. Like that seems unfair. Um, I don't think we have a technical uh, distinction between unjust and unfair, but that's just the reaction. You know, so if you were to explain this to a common, you know, thinking person, they say, "Well, that's that's unfair." So that's what he's raising raising up. He raises up the question: Is God unjust? And what is his answer? In verse 14, not at all. All All right, so we're done. We're all set, right? No, he's not unjust, let's move on. No, he's not, not doing that. He's going to explain why God is not unjust, all right? So we have to walk through what those reasons would be, not just here, but generally biblically, all right? So let's look at his argument. First verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire, effort, effort or the man who works or the man who runs, the man who um, yearns or desires or the man who runs. There's different translations, but anyway, it does not depend on that, but on God, on God who has mercy is a better translation, on the God who has mercy. It does not depend on man who does X, but on God who does X or does Y. That's how the logic goes. It doesn't depend on man, but on God. Uh, Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In his argument, all right, and then to finish verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now you look at that and if you were to put that in your own words, all right, what is the question in front of us? Why is it the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? Up to this point, if you look at verses, you know, the verse we've seen so far, what is his answer? Why are these Jews rejecting Christ? What is the answer, at least at this point, that he's given?
1: God is hardening their hearts.
0: The ones that are rejecting God's hardening their hearts, or at least there is a category of hardening. And this is what I want to say about reprobation. Election, um, the mirror image of election is reprobation. It is, you know, and that's where the rubber meets the road. The clearest, you know, articulation and controversy on that is in verse 13, Jacob I love, Esau I hated but you've got vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath later. Uh, It's not on this sheet, but it's later in the same chapter. You've got two categories of people, all right? You've got people that God is showing mercy to, and you've got people that God is hardening. And so an answer for the rejection of Christ by the Jews is the hardening activity of God, you know? And he's gonna openly say it at the beginning of chapter 11, has God rejected his people generally? Has he totally rejected the Jews? Not at all, I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If God had rejected all the Jews, there wouldn't be any Jewish believers. So that's his ar- argument, his logic there. I, God has not wholesale rejected the Jews because some Jews are believing, all right? And then he cites the example of um, Elijah. Don't you remember in the uh, account about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, right? So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. It's the same answer there in chapter 11. There's this remnant that God's working in, saving. And the rest, are hardened, and he openly says that. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did, the rest were hardened. So that's the hardening he's gonna talk about again in chapter 11, but here he first brings it up with Pharaoh. So this is, this is the doctrine, that's his answer. The reason that, that they are rejecting is the hardening activity of God. That's why they're rejecting, that's the answer he gives. Now, I think we cannot apply it to any people, specifically, by name. All right, you are a vessel of wrath that God is hardening. First of all, very negative message, you know, it's like, but second of all, why do I say we can never apply that to any specific people who are living and breathing on planet earth, people we know, their names and all that. I know that you're a vessel of wrath whom God is hardening. Because we don't know. We don't know. Why don't we know? We're not God. He hasn't told us who they are. We just know that the category exists. Does that make sense? The category exists. Will we know in eternity? Will we know in heaven? Yes, this will explain what we know by then. This, these verses will explain what happened in the end with those people. Does that make sense? This is just telling us why it is happening and that there are people for whom it is happening, but we can't apply it specifically. The one exact exception, of course, is Jesus. Have I not chosen you the 12 and one of you is a devil, All right, But that's because he's God, he knows. The rest of us, we can't do that, why? Because as I said last week, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference. Unconverted elect people look exactly like unconverted reprobates. They live the same kind of life. They have the same kind of immorality. They have the same kind of false doctrine. They might be in the same kind of false religions and cults and all that, like Saul of Tarsus. You know what I'm saying? You can't tell the difference. And so therefore, in every case with people, we're always hoping that they are unconverted elect, living very badly. Isn't that true? I mean, don't we, don't we, isn't that the hopefulness that we have? We never give up on anyone. However, this is not talking about individuals by name. This is talking about categories and reasons why this whole thing is happening. Any questions about that so far? All right, so let's walk through what I gave you last time. Paul's unequivocal answer, may it never be, and then six reasons. Why is it absolutely impossible to consider or think that in unconditional election, God is unjust? That's the question. Uh, Is God unrighteous or unjust for unconditionally electing people to eternal life? All right, may it never be. Here are six reasons. First, the nature of God. Secondly, the nature of justice. The third, the nature of mercy. The fourth, the nature of sovereignty. The fifth, the nature of self-revealed glory. And the sixth, the nature of humanity. Now these titles have come from my study and from this sermon. They're not coming directly from the text, but it's more like what you do generally when you're dividing up a text and preaching. You look at what's in the paragraph and you kind of give it a title. That's how you write sermon outlines. You give them titles, that makes sense. So these titles are flowing from the logic of the verses rather than the the titles are actually in the verse. So you say, well, pastor, that's not true. My Bible has the titles right there. It's like those were put in by editors, all right? Just so you know, they're doing the same thing I do as a preacher. They're like, Jesus feeds the 5,000. That's not in the text the, the feeding of the is, but the title is. So I'm just giving titles. That makes sense, logical titles over the way he argues. Let's start with, uh, is God unjust? May it never be because after all, we're talking about God here, all right? So this isn't directly in it, it just has to do with the overall Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. Is it possible for the God of the Bible to be unjust? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. It is impossible for God to be unjust because of God's overall reputation and many other verses that establish the justice of God. So the NAS does a better job bringing the Greek out. The Greek can ask a question in a certain way. There's uh, grammar in which the question is asked expecting the answer no. You see what I'm saying? And it is written in that way that grammatically, it is written more like the NIS. What then shall we say? There is no injustice with God is there. That's actually a little more accurate translation. Does that make sense? He's expecting the answer no. It's impossible for God to be unjust. So that's, that's why it's written that way, may it never be. So God is not unjust in unconditional election simply because God cannot be unjust in anything he does. God's passion for justice burns brighter than the sun and he's proven it again and again in his statements, his actions, his reactions, and his judgments. Above this, God demonstrates his passionate commitment to justice in the sacrifice of his son. Now, this is a summary here. In the longer version, I start giving verses that talk about God's justice, that celebrate God's justice. For example, Psalm 36 says, your justice is like the mighty mountains, this kind of thing. There's a lot of this kind of thing that just celebrates the justice of God, that God is a God of justice. Um, But, The clearest example is in Romans 3, all right? Uh, Could someone read that? Romans 3, 20, 21 through 26, what I call the glowing heart of the gospel. Just look, it's not in your handout, but um, Romans 3, 21 through 26.
1: presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand and punished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus.
0: Okay, he did it to dem- demonstrate what? Demonstrate his righteousness. his righteousness. What would be a synonym for righteousness that might be relevant to our study tonight? Justice. Right? Is the cross a demonstration or display of God's justice? Absolutely. And I would argue it is the greatest there has ever been. If you want to understand God's commitment to justice, look at the cross. Now, we know from Romans 5 8 that it's a demonstration of love. That's home base for us, and it should be. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It is a display of love. Or John three sixteen God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is a display of God's love, no doubt. But in Romans 3, the first thing Paul wants to get across is the display of God's justice. And why? Because he says he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Such as what? Well, I've said before, David and Bathsheba. Remember Nathan, the prophet came and after telling a, a parable about a, a rich man that wouldn't take one of his own animals, but took a little poor ewe lamb from a poor guy that like cuddled it and all You remember that whole terrible story. And uh, David was enraged and said, that man deserves to die because he took that other man's sheep. You no, know, he should pay fourfold or something like that. He said, you are the man, remember? And he's talking about what? the sin with Bathsheba. He took another man's wife, killed the man to cover it up and then took her. And now she's his wife. God hated that. And David said what to Nathan the prophet? I have sinned. And what did Nathan the prophet say to him? You will not die. Whoa. Now to us, that's no big deal. It's like, isn't that nice? Oh, this is a problem for God. Why? Why is that a problem for God? You will not die. Uh huh. just. Uh-huh. And another verse says, there is no favoritism with him. That appear like favoritism, like David's kind of like an inside guy who can get away with murder, literally. Sure did look like David got away with murder. When Nathan, speaking by the spirit, pointed at him and said, you're the man. And then he said, you'll not die. The Lord has taken away your sin. That is an example of what Paul means when he says in his forbearance, God had left the sins committed beforehand, what? Unpunished. David died in his bed in his old age and went to be with Jesus. So whatever happened to that whole Bathsheba thing, it got paid at the cross. Does that make sense? God wanted to demonstrate his justice. Now, what was the cost of the display of God's justice to God? What did it cost him to display his justice? What was the price? Well, who's Jesus to God? His only begotten son. This is my son whom I love. And I'm gonna slaughter him so that you sinners can have your sins dealt with. Now, here's the thing. We come along and we question God's justice. What are our credentials compared to his in terms of commitment to justice? What's the most, the greatest display of your justice has ever been in your life? Where would you say is the time you have most, in a costly way, displayed your own commitment to justice? By the way, someone it, I was reading this like, I've never seen ever in a court of law, somebody demanding justice against themselves for a crime they themselves have committed. I demand justice. I have murdered this person and I deserve to die. Have you ever heard of that? This person who's like an expert in, in, in legal history said, it's. I don't think it's ever been done. When people are screaming for justice, they basically want revenge is what they want. They want the court to pay out for what that person did to them, which you know I understand. But imagine saying it against yourself. But the fact of the matter is our credentials of justice are slim at best compared to God's. God's commitment to justice is displayed in the fact that he slaughtered his only begotten son so that he would not let the sins committed beforehand go unpunished. So that's the first line of reasoning. It is impossible for anything God does to be unjust. Now, here's the thing, someone who doesn't believe in these doctrines and say, yes, that's exactly why I can't believe in unconditional election because God the just could never do such an unjust thing. That's the way the argument would work. But the, again, keep in mind, the doctrine has to be of such a type that elicits this accusation. You see what I'm saying? It has to draw forth this accusation that Paul has to address and say, Effectively, what's going on, though it seems like this is unjust, it isn't. It's impossible because anything God does is right. Does that make sense? So the doctrine heads towards seeming injustice, but it actually isn't unjust. Okay, so that's the first line. Any questions about that? It's impossible because of the nature of God's justice. Okay, let's go on to the second one. The nature of justice itself, or, you know, in your translation, I'm, I'm sorry, Carmen, what translation do, do you have there? Hello, oh, it's a newer, is its it? Is it an older one, I think. Oh, is it? All right. Unrighteousness, interesting. Uh, there are different NIVs. <laughs> I learned that when I was memorizing. But anyway, there's a whole flavor of, of NIVs. Uh, there's same thing with ESV. I think uh, they've locked one of those translations in, and say, we promise we're not changing it anymore. Um, but anyway, that's fine. Uh, justice, what is it? Or we could say righteousness, let's stick with justice. How would you define it? I mean, it's important. I mean, if we're gonna accuse God of un- injustice, it'd be good to know what we're talking about. What is righteousness? Or justice,
1: fairness? Is this, is this the fairness?
0: Well, I guess. Um, but I, I, if you think about the, you know, like government, the Department of Justice. So, what are they meaning? I don't think they would call it fairness because fairness would be, I guess, like if there's six cupcakes and there's twelve people, everybody gets fifty percent of a cupcake. That would be fairness. Justice seems to be. Maybe a little higher than that. I don't know. Justice. That which lines up with what is right, I guess. To be impartial. 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 Right or wrong. Right or wrong. It lines up with what's right. I I
1: would think if the, the law has been set, then it's adhering to that and being consistent with it, whatever.
0: So it's hard to define justice apart from some sense of a standard, right? Something that lines up with a standard. Does that make sense? It, there's gotta be a standard and then this comes along and lines up or doesn't. This is, it's like a meter. This is a meter and this is not a meter. This is a meter and this is too long to be a meter, you know, that kind of thing. There's gotta be a standard. Like there, there is, I'm 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 certain that there's a, a Federal Bureau of Standards and Measurements, isn't there? I mean, there's gotta be, they probably have a metal rod that's a meter long, you know, I don't know. You know, my wife has a rubber ruler. It always bothered me. I'm like, "What is the word?" She said, but it doesn't flex in this direction if flex you can bend it, but it doesn't stretch you know it makes sense. there's a bias to it so but it, and I just you don't want a rubber ruler, you know in general, um but fits in the drawer well, I guess um but anyway, the idea is it's there's a standard that it is lining up too. that seems to be the the idea so. In this case, it's impossible to get away from the fact that the standard of righteousness in the universe is what? Is it God's law? Something higher than that. seems like the standard of righteousness is God himself. Whatever God says is right, is right. There has to be a standard somewhere. And that, that seems to be, it's a commitment to, to God and to a sense of value or ordering. So I was looking right before I came here, it was uh, 20 past, so I was like, I was just curious about this. There's a standard of jurisprudence and there's something called uh, grand theft, like grand theft auto. I was looking up, uh, so what is the difference between theft and grand theft? The value of what was stolen, right? So that tends in the same direction. I also looked this up. Is it true that to murder a police officer carries a greater penalty than to murder a private citizen? In most states it does. Why is that? Because of what the police officer represents to the society. So to kill the police officer is an attack on the society and therefore punished greater than to kill an ordinary human being. They're not saying that the worth and value of that person's human life is greater, but it has to do with the, the uh, value systems. That makes sense within society, a value system. And so it's very clear with the grand theft thing. It's like there's you know, below a certain amount, $500, 1,000, it's just petty larceny, something like that. But then it becomes a you know, a felony if it's a, a certain amount. So, there, all right. so the standard of righteousness in the universe is God himself. So let me read what I have written here. God himself is the ultimate standard of justice in the universe. Basically, if God does something, It is by definition just simply because, just, sorry, simply because he did it. God is not subject to some higher standard of justice. He is the higher standard of justice. All words, deeds, intentions, plans, motives are brought against this one perfectly straight edge, the character of Almighty God. And righteousness consists in valuing properly what is most valuable. What is most valuable in all the universe? God himself everything else is creature and God is creator. So God has a greater value than all the creatures. What would it be called to value a creature above the creator? It has a name, that's idolatry. God is not an idolater, therefore does God value himself above his creation? He actually does. If he were to value his creation above himself, he would be an idolater and God is not an idolater. So therefore he values himself above all. So God does whatever most values himself above everything else in his creation. That's the righteousness of God. God himself, his own name, his own glory is the most valuable thing in the universe. Therefore God is just or righteous in unconditional election because by so doing, he is valuing his own glory and his own name above everything else in the universe. John Piper puts it this way, God's righteousness is essentially his unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory. God is righteous to the decree, a degree, sorry, that he upholds and displays the honor of his name. He is righteous when he values what is most valuable and what is most valuable is, on, is his own glory. Therefore, God's justice, his righteousness consists most fundamentally in doing what is consistent with the esteem and demonstration of his name, his glory, God would be unrighteous if he did not uphold and display his glory as infinitely valuable. So the two keys are in place for understanding the argument of Romans 9:15. Paul is arguing that there is no unrighteousness with God when he elects unconditionally, why? Using our two keys, the answer is, because God's name, the essence of his glory, consists in his absolute freedom to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's who he is. And his righteousness is his unswerving allegiance always to uphold and display this glory. Therefore, he must uphold and display his freedom if he is to be righteous. So uh, more comments I make here. God himself is the ultimate standard of justice. By definition, anything God does is just. There is no standard higher than God, and God never acts contrary to his own nature. At a deeper level, justice itself must be defined relative to God's own character and nature. Unconditional election is not unjust because it perfectly reflects God's passion to uphold his name and his glory. Now, let me say one thing. There is a moment in history in which one of God's creatures implies that there is a standard above God and God doesn't argue against it. It has to do with uh, the statement in Genesis, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, right? What is he about to do? Destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, remember that. And Abraham, I believe, is very concerned about his nephew Lot and his nephew's family. All right, they're living in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So what does Abraham ask God concerning the imminent destruction? See, what happens is he says, he's sending his angels, we know they're angels, but he sends his messengers down there to see if the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is as great as it really is. And if not, I'll know. What does Abraham know about that whole inquiry? Where does he think that inquiry is going to go? Very badly for Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows exactly what they're going to find. And he also knows what's about to happen. He has a sense of the impending doom hanging over Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows that, right? Somehow he knows. So he asked God a question. Will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from God to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What does it imply? That there's a standard God Himself needs to line up with, right? What do you think about that discussion? Does God say, I am the standard of justice? Does he say that?
1: He bargained with them. But, I mean, he it was a back. He and well, but it was back and forth.
0: He started saying, Tell you what, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? We're gonna sweep away the 50 with the rest of the wicked? What was his answer? He said, if I find fifty people in that city. I'll spare the, the whole place for the sake of the 50. And he says, what if there's five less than 50? Remember this whole thing? It's like we're bartering for camels here or something like this. We're like in a, in a bazaar over, over a you know, Persian rug or something. We're going, all right. What if it's, he said, and God says, I can do the math. If there's 45 people righteous, I'll spare the city. So what about 40, 30, remember? 20. What if there's 10 righteous people? So if I can find 10 righteous people in that city. I'll spare it for the sake of the 10, all right? So that, that whole thing. And it says when God had finished talking to Abraham, he left him. So God ended the discussion at 10, all right? E.M. Bounds in his thing on prayer said, perhaps Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of Abraham's over-optimism about how many righteous people would be found in the city if he had kept going, all right? Was Lot righteous? In the human sense, human way of talking, he was. Peter calls him a righteous man who is tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. What about Lot's wife? Not so much. What about his two daughters? You don't wanna know about his two daughters. We read about them later in the cave, all right? They're interesting people. What about his sons-in-law? They never made it out. I think there might've been one righteous person in the city, but God is the one that ended that conversation. Here's the thing. Just because God didn't refute Abraham, doesn't mean that it was inappropriate for him, Abraham, to say, you need to submit to a standard. My question is where did Abraham's sense of righteousness come from? It came from God. Why would we say his sense of what is righteousness came from God to begin with? Well, let me ask another question. Where did Abraham come from to begin with? (laughs) Let's, Let's keep it simple. Where did Abraham come from? God made him, right? He created him in his image, all right? Say, no, he created Adam in his image. Look, Seth had a son in his image and his likeness. He's in the image of God. We're all in the image of God. James says we're all in the image of God. So we understand this. Abraham's sense of righteousness comes because he's in the image of God. So basically, if you could imagine a standard of uh, one meter, like in the Bureau of Standards and Measures, and along comes... um, a machinist or something like that. And he cuts out like 50 or hundred or thousand measurement sticks lining up with the one meter and does an outstanding job, right? And so they're all well enough one meter. There's still that one standard. For this one thing that was cut alongside the standard to come along and question the original doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense? That his one meterness came from the original standard to begin with. But God doesn't, you know, he accepts, I know you're committed to justice. I'm glad of it. I know why you're committed because I created you in my image. He goes with him. Does that make sense? So ultimately God's commitment to justice is a commitment to himself and to what he says is right. One more thing in the NIV's translation of the pouring out of the judgment of God in uh, Revelation 16, five through seven, the angels are pouring out judgment in the, from the vials, the bottles, the bowls, you know, and they pour it out on the fresh water and turn it to blood. And they're celebrating the justice of God in doing this. And they say, righteous you are, O Lord, sovereign and true for doing this, because you have done this. So what does that mean? It's in 16.5, Revelation 16.5. You are right, O Lord, in doing this because this is what you have done. What is the angel saying? What you do is right. If you did it, it's right. And how does the the angel feel? That's how they are. They don't even wonder about this. If God does it, it's right. It's just simple for them. But they go on to say, "For the you have shed the blood of your people, and they and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve." So there's a secondary, "Hey, this makes senseness to it." Does that make sense? It it just it lines up. God does things that just line up with our instincts of righteousness, and then it, it it's satisfying to us when we see that happen. Does that make sense? That's that's what he's he's getting at. All right, thirdly, let's talk about the nature of mercy. All right, why is it not unjust? Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me read what I wrote. Unconditional election is not unjust because it's not ultimately about justice. It's not unjust, but that's not specifically what's being displayed in salvation. All right, in one sense it is. But fundamentally, when we have sinned, we don't then clamor for justice in our case. We more beg for mercy. So what in this case, in a simple way of thinking about a court trial, what's the difference between somebody who's demanding justice and somebody who's begging for mercy? I mean, what is mercy in that case?
1: Getting what you don't deserve.
0: Right, yes. Or another way would be saying not getting what you do deserve. And, and both are true. The thing about salvation is, we get the double infinite blessing of not hell and heaven. If there were no heaven and, and we deserve to go to hell and just didn't go to hell, that would be mercy, wouldn't it? To not end up in hell when you deserve it, that's to not get what you deserve. To be in heaven when you don't deserve it, that's to get something you don't deserve. All saved people get both of those blessings. Isn't that incredible? We get the double blessing of heaven and not hell. Anyway, it's a, matter of, it's a matter of mercy. It's not a matter of justice. So he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have ma- mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I, I will have compassion. Unconditional election is not unjust because the real issue here is not of justice, but of mercy. All human beings are sinful rebels against the person and laws of God. Not one of us can demand anything from God. Furthermore, our sin has so corrupted our nature that we hated God, we were opposed to his gospel, forfeited any claim on him, not that any created being could ever have a claim on God that God should repay. Therefore, all we have left is to beg for mercy and no one can ever demand mercy. God would would never be unjust if he didn't show mercy to a hate-filled rebel. So it's not a matter of justice, but of mercy and God can give it to whomever he wills. So he has the freedom to give mercy on whom he wills to give mercy. It's just something he is free uh, to do. Now, if you look at it, and, you know, this will come later and we're out of time tonight, but what is the mercy that Moses was asking for? Was he asking to not go to hell? No, he asked God to show, show him his glory. Remember, show me your glory. And he said, all right, I will because I found favor with you and I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. So the mercy is to see the glory of God. And that has to do with heaven, isn't it? That's the essence of heaven. So that's that's the mercy that he's, he's giving. Unconditional election is not unjust because it is fundamentally the mercy of God revealing himself to us. Questions, comments, up to this point. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. What does that mean to you? What do those words mean to you? I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy.
1: It's God's decision. It's his. It's limited, it's not everyone.
0: Do you remember the parable of the uh, workers in the vineyard that all got paid the same amount? Remember, the denarius and the guys worked all day in the heat of the day. And then the guys are hired a few hours later and they worked. And then the guys hired a few hours later and they worked. And then, you know, with an hour to go in the workday, some guys are standing around. It's like, you know, nobody's hired us. And he's like, go and work and I'll pay you whatever's right. So he pays the workers in reverse order. Remember? So the ones that were hired last got the same thing, got the denarius. So the ones that were had worked all day thought, wait a minute, all right, we're gonna get two denarii, right? Or three or something like that. And they got the same, remember? <laughs> do you remember what the master in the parable said? You know, Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own things? Or are you envious because I'm generous? It's an interesting statement. It's relevant even to this verse. I have the right to do whatever I want with my things. And you shouldn't be envious if I'm generous to some people. So fundamentally, Salvation is God being generous, isn't it? It's God showing mercy. All right, why don't we close in in prayer? Lord, these are deep things. They're complex, challenging, uh, powerful. Pray that you would um, please help us to understand them as best we can. Uh, Help us to be humbled by them. We who have the testimony of the spirit in our hearts, that we are children of God, that our sins are forgiven. We should be on our knees really on our faces, just saying, Lord, thank you for saving me. I didn't deserve it, uh, but you have been gracious to me and you have not given me what I deserved. And instead, you have been merciful to me. So thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes